Welcome to the Fun Engagement Pod from Fun Insights, bringing you insights straight from the experts. You can join the Fun Engagement Network at funinsights.co.uk and we'll let you know when new episodes come out. We're also on Acast, Google, Apple and all major podcasting platforms. This stuff is the future. 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 Well, it's hard to believe, but we're already at episode eight of the Fan Engagement Pod. Welcome. This episode features Oliver Ash, co-owner of Maidstone United Football Club and also co-owner of Breve Rugby Union Club in France. And he lives just outside Paris. I first met Oliver a few years ago and I've always liked the way he makes fun engagement such a natural part of what he does. He takes the view that it's good for business to be in tune with your most important group of stakeholders. And in the case of Maidstone United those whose loyalty kept the club alive in its darkest days of park football. We chatted about the reason he decided to help Maidstone build their new ground, what the challenges are for fan engagement in non-league football, and what the crossovers are with his rugby union interests. Don't forget you can join the Fan Engagement Network at faninsights.co.uk forward slash network forward slash join. Oliver, um, you are the co-owner of Maidstone United. You're also a director and shareholder of Breathe. Um, rugby union in France um, and you you pre previously or sorry alongside of that you uh, work in um, the built environment as they call the built, built environment industry as they call it over here now the property development and that kind of thing um, can you just give us a little bit more about your background and, and what in the end actually because I've always been curious to this and I'm no, not sure I've ever asked you I've known you for a few years now what made you get involved at Maidstone um, United so yeah um well um the the background from a professional point of view yeah the background of is, is in real estate and most of my my life my life and my career has been in france so i've been i've been in france for, for now 35 years or so and i was always when i was brought up in england uh, i was a sports nut from really as as, as young as i can remember um football cricket uh rugby were the main sports i enjoyed i just loved sport and so somewhere in the back of my mind uh you know i always thought that what a great life it must be if you can if you can get some some sort of work uh, involved in sport so that that's in the back of my mind and um because i was brought up in england uh, i got you know i got involved in uh, in, in uh, football and rugby through following England or, or English clubs. Like football, I followed West Ham. I went to West Ham for the first time when I was 11, uh, although I lived the other side of London. I remember the adventures of going up to West Ham. It was just the most exciting thing I can, I can remember doing. It was just electrifying as a child in the North Bank at Upton Park with 40,000 people for the second game I watched against Arsenal. And it's just a totally electrifying and addictive experience. And so that, that hooked me. And although I went to, to, to live in France afterwards, it was always English football and, and club football that, um, that continued to really to, to excite me. And I never got into French club football and I never have. Um, so English club football was always an area that I, I, I loved. And so 
how I got involved in Maidstone, we went as a family to live in England for three years in 2005. And I saw an article one day in the, in the local paper saying that the Maidstone United then owner was looking for partners to come and help him to build a stadium in the town and revive the club's fortunes. And I knew nothing at all about uh, the club, but I'd been looking for a, a sports project. And I just thought, well, this looks interesting. And I was living in Kent. Uh, let's go and have a chat. So I went to meet him and uh, his then um, colleague, Bill Williams, who's a, a stalwart, who's been, yeah. um, who's, who's, whose heart is, uh, has got Maidstone United carved into it. And one thing led to another and I got involved and I uh, agreed to help um, to see if, if um, the, uh, the, the new stadium that was being talked about could be done. And within a year or so, it became apparent that it couldn't. But by then I'd got involved to, to a degree that I wanted to, to help the club keep, um, keep moving on. I could, I'd, I'd met a lot, a lot of the supporters. There was a wonderful bunch of supporters um, at Maidstone. It's a big town. So I felt there was a great potential there. Uh, and uh, so when push came to shove and the um, previous owner got into financial difficulties and his stadium project was just not realizable, it wasn't feasible, um, with a bit of luck, um, and good fortune uh, meeting another gentleman who became my partner, Terry Casey, uh, just at the right time before the whole thing went belly up. We decided on a whim to um, build a stadium and get the club back into, into Maidstone. And, and that's really, in a, in a long nutshell, how it all happened. That's, that's quite a whim, <laughs> but an impressive one nonetheless. Um, the... I mean, so this 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 very much has been a, a labour of love, and people will know that. Over, uh, I mean, so what some people might not be aware of is obviously that Maidstone, um, because it was so long ago, went bust in the early nineties, and then kind of crawled right back up from the very very park pitches to my to my recollection. Yeah. Um, yeah. Around the yeah, just after the time uh, Aldershot town, Aldershot went bust for first time, um, and. Um, so 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 it's been a you know a long journey back for 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 Maidstone and obviously popping back into the National League for a season or two in uh, National League Premier was quite quite something really um, uh, that kind of rise um, the, the unexpected promotion. Um, what have been for you in, in that particular time because you know the club suddenly um, well not you know obviously it wasn't sudden because you were in the division below but you weren't expecting to get into the National League Premier when you did. Um, how does that affect the, the atmosphere, the expectations? How, do you, how, do, how does the club feel, you know, because they are kind of quite visceral places. You know, how did you, how did you deal with the, the, the expectations that were inevitable as a result of that promotion that you got that wasn't really expected, but of course you can't refuse it? Um, in a in a fan engagement sense, how, what what how did that feel? What what did that change? At well, most of yeah, time? it's been it, it, it's it's been a an up sort of a, a very much a roller coaster. And it, it, going back to the the demise of the club in in 1992 was perhaps an an example of of where the fans got shafted really because the uh, mm. the, the the then club sold its ground um, and there was a, a plan to build a new ground but there was no planning permission and in the end it, it's difficult to get to the truth of it I wasn't around then many of the 
of the of our older fans mm. today were around and they've got some strong opinions about it but the the then owner of the club effectively they they got it wrong and and they suddenly found themselves playing in a in a in a you know away from the, from the stadium they had no stadium they had no new stadium project because the planning had been turned down they'd been what they described let down by the local authorities so suddenly all this was going on at board level and the fans suddenly realized they were about to see their club going under so it's actually a, a really good example of a very sad event for fans where where fans are out of the loop completely and at the time there was a madcap scheme to sell the club to people who would move it to the northeast of england if you can believe that Oh yes, I can. Very good case study. Remember, Wimbledon's yeah. my club, so I've yeah, I've seen yeah. us offered to plenty of towns. Yeah, you, you, but that that would be a good case study for a, the, the sort of scheme that, that makes moving to moving to Milton Keynes almost a, a positive event. This is absolutely lunatic, and so the fans got royally shafted. So suddenly, the, the club had virtually disappeared, and then yes, it was a long uh, process for the, the keen. 200, 300 uh, fans who, who then followed it from park pitches all the way back up to, you know, where it was when 20 years later, when, when we turned up, when I, I came on the scene, it was all about to go belly up again, really, because it had got, it had got all the way back up to the semi-pro areas of, of the, the Isthmian League, which was a, a major achievement, really, um, at the time. But all the time, the, the, the previous owner had been really had invested in the team and there was still no stadium and you get to a stage if you want to in, in keep improving the the level of your football team where you need to be at home you need to be generating uh generating cash from having your own stadium and you have to have a home for for the fans as well it's part of the fan engagement process so there was no home and suddenly it got to the stage where that was going to be a real issue and there was there, there was no home so so when we came in we we had the uh, we took the risk with with my partner to actually um, build a stadium, and and of course the budget then went um, went way over what it should do, and 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 uh, we ended up investing probably more money in in um, the stadium than we'd ever imagined. But we felt it was a real investment, and the word investment is used unwisely in football often to describe money that's thrown at, uh, at, at playing squads. This was a real investment in the, in the, in the real estate, the infrastructure and creating you know, a community hub. And, and that was all done. And then the team and the, and the, 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 the sort of playing side followed sort of magnificently for, for several years with uh, the then manager, Jay Saunders, and, and a really good group of players. And yes, so we suddenly found ourselves overachieving we were fortunate to to get promoted to the national league, and and as you say, we, we then had a, a, a the challenge of managing the expectations of certainly that by then we were at two two and a half thousand um, crowds, of which probably at least half of them were new fans from the the modern era since since we got involved, who had known nothing but success. Mm. So uh, I'm not sure whether we managed them uh, as such at all. Really, it was a uh, it was just a case we we kind of knew in the back of our minds that, that these these fans were almost unmanageable because there was going to come a time when we we were no longer growing at the same rate and and uh, we did what we what we could to explain to communicate and try and try and make pass the message on that there's more to the club than just winning the league every season and that that wasn't going to happen every season 
and there was much more to the club than that. And to some degree, we succeeded. I guess to some degree, we failed. Okay, uh, Oliver, let let me interrupt there. So, you 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 sort of used that um, phrase, or you know, explain to people you, that, that that form of words, and it, it's a bit of a throwaway line for you. But I don't think it's always appreciated that that isn't necessarily what's done every, everywhere. So when you say explain things to people, what do you mean? What channels did you use to explain to people? A program, um, a website, um, you know, did you, were you fairly sort of in, deliberate about it? You know, it, I'm, I'm assuming you were. Yeah, um, yeah, because... we, we were, yeah, we were. I think we used, we used the old-fashioned channels and we used whatever new channels we, we <clears throat> thought were going to get through to the, to the fans for example we did we did regular we do regular supporters meetings so face to face at the club we think it's quite important uh, that we we, sh- we show ourselves we are fans it's important to note that you know the fan engagement for a lot of people also means fan ownership which is another subject fascinating subject of course um, and and we're a, some sort of weird example of fan ownership because there's only two of us but we're both fans so uh, we, we we did a lot of personal contact we, we we're always available on match day and and, and 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 open to discussing things with with fans we have a an independent supporters club that that um, you know we arrange to meet regularly as well with the uh, the leaders of that group to try and make sure that if they've got specific issues that they think the fans are concerned about we listen and we obviously try and do what we can to to satisfy them uh, and social media websites social media the more the modern way of getting through to the younger fan base in particular. The younger fan base doesn't read newspapers. They don't really, I mean, even websites are a bit out of date for, for today's younger fans. So you have to try and move as quickly as you can. And given the fact that the three directors of our club, we're all in our 60s, it's not easy to think like a young person, but we've got some younger people in the club who help us. So yeah, we tried to cover, we tried to do everything we, we, we sort of reasonably could to communicate. And, uh, yeah, just to sort of demonstrate, as we have done from the beginning, really, that the key things about what we're doing in the club, which is that we have, we've invested, we've, we, we have invested the money to make the club what it is now, and that 10 years ago, it was a, it was a sort of derelict site in town, mm. and we've put our, our wallets and our hearts into making it happen, and that the owners don't take any money out, and, and it's, a, it's a mixture of love and business um, sort of rigour. Right. that will make the club successful. And most of the fans have bought into that. They understand and mm. they support the idea that we are a club that will not do football in a sort of, in a, in a bad old football way, but will do mm. it in a way which is, makes, makes the club a sustainable business mm. and because that ultimately is what the fans um, should appreciate. And they do. That's the, the wonderful thing is that they, in the most part, they do. Some of the new ones... I think have sort of lost interest, probably mm. drifted away because mm. they they got involved perhaps for the wrong reasons, and we couldn't guarantee winning all the games all no. the time. So well, they get you know people, yes, people will come and go. You the fan, fans will not yeah. fans will not always remain intensely loyal. Um, you know, people will come and go and drift depending on what position the pyramid you're in. So I mean, really, we I like to ask a sort of or try to get to what the sort of special sources that people have? What's the thing that people do that really defines their approach to fan engagement? And for you, for me at least, from reading from what you're talking about, um, 
the first principle you seem to operate on is transparency, that you're quite prepared, quite happy to explain and be open about what is going on and why you're doing things the way you do. Um, and, and, the, and then secondly, you have as much dialogue as you can, that actually a lot of what seems to go on at Maidstone, and I've always sort of understood this because I've, I've visited you a couple of times, um, is, is, that, is that it's about the culture um yeah. for you uh that that really 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 is important for you um in that in 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 um uh without it seeming too clunky your involvement in breathe in rugby union are there ever any overlaps any parallels you see when it comes to fan engagement in that environment when uh, compared to maidstone and, and and british football english football um, can you can you see any parallels there? Are there things that are similar, um, you know, perhaps in the way that you have to deal with fans or in, in the way they respond, the way that you, that you the relationship that, that you might have with them? I mean, obviously... I don't, yeah, I don't think, I mean, there's, there's, no, uh, there's no great overlap on that particular subject. I think that, the, I mean, the, the friend of mine who is the, who, who's the, the president of the club at the moment, who... You know, I, I I know very well, and we've, we've we've worked together on many different projects. He he probably thinks along the same lines. We both think along the same lines. He's he's one of the the most brilliant communicators I've ever met, and and he understands fully the need to get fans on board and the need to communicate with fans and the way to communicate. So he drives the club along those lines as well. And and again, the, the idea of transparency when you say that that's, the, that's one of our hallmarks, it doesn't seem to me to be anything particularly unusual. I can't imagine running the club or, or a business like that in any other way than, than being transparent. We have nothing to hide. It's, it's not like you know, there's anything in the business that we have to hide. We're discreet about certain things for obvious reasons, but otherwise we're, we're, completely, we're completely open. We like to publish our figures the way you know, a PLC would do because that seems like the normal thing. And the more we can put out into the public domain, the more that our supporters will, will get information and hopefully engage because they see that we're giving them information. And it's something that in today's crisis, this major crisis we're, we're in the middle of, um, it's something I've just been dealing with this morning. I was chatting to um, one of our, my colleagues at the club about how we can continue to communicate with supporters in this period where there's nobody working at the club. Mm. How can we continue to do it? And the, just as an example, I said, I said, I think that the rugby club is doing a very good job of its communications at the moment. And I think it's, it's easier for the rugby club because they've got one or two employees still working, whereas we effectively don't, apart from the, the, the directors who aren't paid and not, not on contract, everybody else is furloughed. But for example, the rugby club is, has done, you know, is communicating with, with, on social media with um, some excellent... Um, video communications and, and just some good ideas to keep the fans mm. going so i was i spent some time this morning going through all the things we could do realistically to to keep our fans a attached to the the product mm. by you know giving them some videos giving them some you know the, the 50 50 best goals in the last 10 years and just lots of content and also to keep them informed about what's happening at the club and right that, for me that fan engagement that, yeah. in that respect is that is that sort of personal touch and we 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 did uh two weeks ago we or three weeks ago i can't remember um we agreed bet between 
the three directors, uh, the, the manager and the captain, that we would all phone um, all of our season ticket holders who are over 65. So there's about 300. So we, mm. we, we phoned 300 of our fans and we had a chat with them. And, and some, you know, mm. some of the chats lasted 20 minutes. And they were, most of the people we spoke to were really, really delighted that they had a chance to, you know, that A, we, look, we, we were interested in talking to them and B, that, that uh, they could quiz us and ask us what was going on. And it, that was a, a really good bit of communication with the fan base. And so that's very important, but it seems very natural to me. I can't imagine doing it any other way. Well, okay. So, I mean, actually, just quick, quickly scrolling back to the rugby union thing. Yes, there are parallels because it seems to me that the way that you do things at Maidstone is the way that things are done at, at Breathe, even though operationally you clearly don't have as much anywhere near the, the level of involvement. Um, culturally, very similar. That's right. In, it's in, just we wouldn't call it fan engagement. I think that's the difference. But it's, it's just... It's something. It probably is something that figures as, as communication, but it well, means yeah. the same thing. I it think. I think. Yeah, I think Oliver. I mean, I think that's perhaps part of the problem when fan engagement is talked about. And we were talking about this before we actually started recording. That there there are many definitions. Um, I work on the basis that fan engagement is about the relationship, and it's a subset of stakeholder engagement. It's a, it's and stakeholder yeah. engagement about regarding you know the fan as. Uh, uh, the the people interested in your business is more important than a simple customer. So, actually, this this thing that you do to practice what you do, and even in in and in in, in in the middle of this wretched crisis that dominates us so much, um, uh, the for me where I've seen the most important um, initiatives, if you want want to call it that, is actually they're the same things that those clubs were doing before. They were commun they understood the need to communicate and to be there for people yes to provide great content yes you know those are great they give you a little shiver down your spine when you see you that great center forward you had five years ago joe piggott obviously you know we share yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. um you know and, and that's all terrific and we want to see all that but we also want to know that they're still thinking of us it's for me uh, you know that relationship means i don't care i don't care a damn if sainsbury's are still thinking of me i want when i turn up to be treated nicely as a customer but my club somehow means more to me that I want them to be thinking about me. <laughs> and actually that, again, we've come, come yeah. back. Your yeah. This is the thing that, that I think is really important and really important as well, I think, for, for other football clubs, whether at, uh, you know, whatever level they're playing at, especially if they've got a, dessert, you know, a, a, a substantial fan base like yours, that actually just this act of dialogue uh, and conversation and people being interested in me as a fan is just really important. I wanted to just get to one other um, question before we wrap up. Um, the, I mean, in terms of influencing your, your approach to fans and stakeholders, it's just something that you do, and I think that's terrific. And you could teach a lot of other people some, 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 some ways of doing things that are important. But what I'm interested in is, do you, do you think that non-league football does it, are there any discernible differences? I mean, obviously you don't spend a lot of time in professional, in the top four divisions or the, 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 the you know, of English football, but um, I'm sure you could understand if there are any differences between what you do to engage with your fans at your level versus the, the top four divisions of, of English football. Do you see a common thread uh, on fan engagement um, uh, done, yeah. where I'm done where, you know, where anywhere else further up? Well, it goes back to what you were saying before about what, you know, why, 
why should clubs and, and why historically have clubs, perhaps some clubs anyway, not looked after their fans? Is, is, is that, I mean, football clubs are effectively, if you look at them as businesses, they're monopolies. And monopolies, when you're taught economics, monopolies are the most evil sorts of company because they can abuse their, um, their customers. So football clubs occasionally have, have owners who've abused their customers. The customer of a football club uh, doesn't have an alternative product. If you go into Sainsbury's and they treat you like a, you know, like a piece, of, piece of dirt, you then can quickly decide to go and shop in Aldi or Waitrose. You've got a choice. You're not gonna, you know, if, you, if you support Sheffield United and you think that you, they've got some nasty owner who's messing up the club, you have no choice. You can't swap, suddenly say, oh, well, to hell with that, I'm going to go and support Sheffield Wednesday. You just can't do it. You're stuck. So owners have taken advantage of that over the years. Um, but today, I mean, the way, the way you know, it still is a monopoly. If you look at Maidstone, we've got fans like, fewer fans than Sheffield United, but fans that are just as passionate. But we look at the fans as customers. They're the customers of the business. And, and uh, you know, we, we have to turn our fans into customers and, and, and turn our customers into fans, just like any business. And so it, it would just seem nonsensical and counterproductive to start to ignore fans because they're the, they're the ones that, that ultimately, you know, come to the ground and buy things and spend money in the bar, which those activities are the lifeblood of a non-league, smaller club. And that's perhaps the difference going to your question about Premier League is that the Premier League and clubs in the top echelons of, of European football, they, 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 it's really, they're really very different businesses and, and they, they don't depend so much on the fan coming to the ground. They, they need the fans to come to make the atmosphere. So they have to look after fans. They have to make the fans want to come into the ground. But as long as they've got fans in the ground screaming and shouting, then they sell all their rights on, on TV all over the world. So they have a very different outlook um, to, to, to the one that we have. And um, they do need the fans in the ground. And I think that's important to remember when today everyone's talking about clubs playing matches behind closed doors. Uh, personally, I, I think that that idea will not work because after one or two games on TV watching uh, top teams playing behind closed doors, people are going to turn the TV off. It gets boring without the crowd screaming and shouting. So uh, they, they do need the fans, but perhaps to some degree, they, they, they certainly, they go through the motions, but they haven't got the same proximity that we have. So it's a different sort of, it's a different way of engaging. And, and they probably, in many cases, don't get as close as, as, as we do um, to the fans. But, mm. you know, that's, uh, each club is different. I'm sure some of them at the top level now put a huge effort into the communications and making sure that you know in, in today's world for example that their star striker who's worth 100 million still gets to engage with fans on instagram and on you know and on facebook and there's stuff like that which keeps the fans excited so i think that it's very different the way we try and engage compared to a top club but you know in in, in most cases the well-run club will be will be doing as much as it can in engagement because it's in the interests of the business